You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Thanks for joining us uh, for another episode of Future Proof Workplace. Uh, We've been very excited. We've had some great uh, talent and great thinkers on our show and been talking through some really phenomenal um, topics. You know, I was just in London, Morag. I think you were too recently. I was. It was was really interesting because they had several articles. It was about, um, you know, that this Prince Louis, I guess, was just uh, born. and. In the articles, they were saying that by the time he reaches 80, he will get up in the morning and there will be a robot that will serve him his coffee. Uh, He'll work out with his robot personal trainer. He'll get projected to wherever it is he's supposed to go via the air. And it's going to be a completely different world. And, you know, that was all like fantasy land, um, you know, 50 years ago or so. And, and now it's definitely <laughs> going to be a reality. I was reading it. Oh, Fantasyland. I was just watching the relaunch of Lost in Space. And whilst I didn't watch the first series, that was uh, in the 50s, 60s, I don't know. And you've got your Danger Will Robinson. And uh, even now, the step change in technology that's used in our entertainment industry is night and day from what was available from the cardboard sets 50 years ago. So you're right, by the time Prince Louis gets to um, being an old man, uh, none of us, well, I won't be around, but none of us will be (laughs) able to recognise the current day. And we'll be looking at it with uh, amused humour, as we much do our grandparents. Right. Well, mm-hmm. as as, our, as the digital natives are doing with us uh, now, you know, yes. I was just in Dubai and I panicked because, you know, I couldn't get my computer to work. And, and it forced me to use my phone. Uh, for and, and I realized I don't really need the computer. I can just do just about everything yep. I want to do on the phone. Mm-hmm. I just feel more comfortable with my, you know, laptop, you know, my Mac Air or whatever whatever it is. And, you know, that goes to the heart of our point in our book that, you know, you're going to be left behind with technology unless you force yourself to use what's coming out and to test it and try and make it part of your life. And if you avoid it and you say, oh, I can't do this, then you are going to be left in the dust, right? Agreed, agreed. Technology is pernicious. It's both the enabler of change, but it's also the barrier to change for those who either can't afford it or choose not to, for whatever reason, to get on board. Resistance is futile, as they would say on Star Trek, the next generation with the Borg. You need to get on board. I think we said that in our book. We did. Yeah, I snuck that one in when you weren't looking. (laughs) I think I recognize that phrase from somewhere. Uh I had a wonderful uh, meeting, as you know, with uh, a group of Marshall Goldsmith 50 uh, in New York City, and I had the absolute pleasure of meeting Ram Iyer. And it was really, really an interesting discussion. We had a, a fascinating group of, 
of 50 people in the war, in the room and and uh, we were interacting you know one on one with Marshall and it was just quite a quite a great experience and I ran into Ram and he's the founder and CEO of the Business Thinking Institute and you might say oh yeah well we all do business thinking and he has a particular interest in helping techies uh, like himself succeed but what I love about what he talks about are the silent killers of success. And I think Ram has had personal experience with these silent killers. So he's got some really great stories to tell. And he's headed up the MIT Alumni Association and is active in the alumni community. He's headed marketing for $4 billion businesses. He's been in the VC arena in Silicon Valley, started four companies. So I think we're going to have a very lively discussion with mm-hmm. our friend Ron Iyer. So Ron Iyer. So thank you, Ram, for joining us today. Well, thank you for uh, having me. <clears throat> Looks have like you- the two of you have great chemistry as well. <laughs> we do. It's a good thing because we, we wrote a book together and it would be a disaster. If we didn't- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, particularly since Morak has this funny accent that uh, we don't recognize well. Uh, no, I know. I'm from Texas. I'm sorry. What can I say, y'all? You can tell she's got that Texas twang. But, you know, Ram, you've got to understand the British as an Indian, you know. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, see, see, we, the, 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 of course, I've lived in the U.S. for several decades. So right. I'm more used to the American accent than I am to the British accent. The British accent. Uh. Correct. Correct. So, Ram, you know, let's just jump right in and tell us your story. How did you get started? Well, see, I've um, probably a simple way to describe myself is uh, I need interesting projects and uh, high intellectual stimulation or I get bored. It's mm. probably a simple headline. So I've done a variety of things, some of which may sound very odd. Um, so, like, I, I have a master's in underwater robotics. Oh, that is interesting. How many wow. people do you know that have that? None. I didn't even know that was a course, but it's that's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. We know that, one person with that. It's an undergrad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, that, so I worked in the oil industry. I worked in uh, the North Sea. I worked off of California, Gulf of Mexico, Bombay High. And then when the bottom fell out, I switched into mobile robots. Yeah. And ah. I'm talking the 80s here. And ah. then. 89, I designed a mobile robot that can run around in factories, similar to what Amazon has running in their warehouses today. I think they're called Kiva robots, if I'm not mistaken. So I've designed these and operated these back in 89. Um, Then the bottom fell out of that company. Then I went to another one, designed mobile robots for Eastman Kodak, the photo paper company, a photo company. Mm -hmm. Right, I know that company, right? And then that company went uh, bankrupt. Then I said, I need to find a big company somewhere. And I ended up with a Boeing company. Mm -hmm. And I worked on the Boeing 777 in the 90s. And and one day on a plane ride to Chicago, I had an idea on developing a robot to assemble the fuselage, you know, the barrel in which we all sit, off the 777 because it has multiple sections. 41, 43, 46, et cetera. It's, it's got numbers. So it's got six or seven sections that have to be riveted together in order to create the, uh, the plane, the fuselage of the plane. So I developed uh, that robot and kind of sold that idea, went and got $28 million to build that robot. And, uh, wow. and uh, I started, uh, they said, you're the program manager. 
and then some politics crept in. And uh, on a Friday, they told me I was program manager. I partied all weekend because I was like, I was barely, barely 30. Um, yeah, 32, 33. And I was the head of a $28 million program. So heady stuff. And then I came in on Monday and they said, sorry, we made a mistake. We have yeah. it to give it to the senior most person on the team. <gasps> wow. Steve will be the program manager and you can be his sidekick. Right. Mm. Uh, I said, I don't want to be. A... Huh? <laughs> How'd you feel about that? Not very good. You know, I, so I went back, sulked a little bit, talked to my boss and uh, he said, why don't you build a robot for the 757, which is another plane? I said, okay, I started doing it, but I kind of got dinged. So I said, uh, good time for me to consider life after Boeing. And I decided to go to business school. So I applied to uh, six schools. I got into four of them. And then I went to my boss and said, I got into these four schools and uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And he said, well, what choices do you have? I said, well, Chicago, Columbia, Cornell, and MIT. He said, why are you still thinking? Just the small ones then. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so went to business school and then out of business school, I went to Lucent Technologies. I worked for Carly Furina three times. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know her too. It was a lot of fun I, uh, to work with. Um, so I did uh, developed international strategy for Lucent. Then I was head of marketing and strategy for a four and a half billion dollar business. And then I got into sales all at Lucent. And that's about when the bottom fell out of Lucent. Remember, the stock just tanked. I do remember that, yeah. Yeah. So, so at that time, I decided to go west and became a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. Mm. Uh, we had a bunch of very punchy people with us. Uh, the former CTO of Vodafone Worldwide, former CTO of Nextel, you know, big, big, big guns. We were only five people. But we made one bad investment, and that took the fund down the tubes. So I said, okay, now I'm going to do something else. So <clears throat> I went and uh, started one venture. I didn't get off the ground because it was a half-baked idea. But of course, I didn't know why I had failed. I was in Silicon Valley. So I said, I'm going to go to the next one. But right. fortunately for me, I had a, uh, a friend and mentor, Richard Guha, uh, with whom I had lunch. And he said, why are you pondering what you should be doing? You know, you've got all kinds of things going for you. Okay. He said, you know, you, you've got this MBA, you've got the name, you've got uh, experience, you've worked at a range of companies. You should advise companies on how to go global because at that point I had already been to 35 countries. And I said, hmm, but I don't know much about that. He said, go to a conference and figure it out. <laughs> so, so I went home and uh, punched it in and I found there was a conference in Palm Springs, California, 10 days later. So I called up the people and said, uh, how much does it cost? You know, back in those days, you know, things were all more old fashioned. Right. And it, it was like three and a half, four thousand, something like four thousand oh, dollars. And by yeah. the time I paid to go down, stay in the hotel and come, I was like five grand or five to six grand. I said, that's too much. And almost in jest, I asked that woman, what would it take for me to attend this conference for free? And she got irate with me. And she goes, the only goddamn way you can attend this conference for free is if you're a member of the press. All right. I said, okay. So I got off and I said, I guess I can't go to the conference or maybe I can. Mm -hmm. So I sent emails to all my friends and sure enough, one of them came back and said, ah, 
uh, I actually happen to own a magazine and I can give you press credentials. There you go. So I went to this conference with a press badge on my neck and I asked people, what is the one space where there is an unmet need in the marketplace? And people gave me their opinions because everybody's eager to talk to the press. Mm-hmm. Then I forget, it was the second or third day in the afternoon, I sat down with one guy and he said, you're an engineer, right? I said, yeah. So he sat down, he laid out a little chart and uh, he said, you know, here's the X and the Y and da, 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 da. And there's a problem right here. This is an unmet need. He put an X. That was my third company. Oh, wow. I, what was the unmet need, Ram? Oh, the unmet need was many companies wanted to go global, but they did not have people with broad experience to advise them. Uh-huh. Too many people who were giving them advice were people who had never done it before. So they only had theories or what they read in books. Mm-hmm. So so I know you worked at GE, uh, you know, Genpact. Or, uh, right. GE oh, yeah. 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 I know Tiger very well. And, and, by the way, I have to tell you, Ram, you mm-hmm. know, I wrote a book with uh, Nazneen Razi, all uh-huh. based on research on what types of leaders you really need for global enterprises. And it was really interesting, uh-huh. five characteristics. So Here, here I, is something you like. Yeah. One of the people I recruited for that company was one of the founders of Genpact. Oh, really? Who was it? Sid, Sid Milstein. Oh, I knew Sid Milstein. That's interesting. Yeah, Sid. Sid was Sid worked with us, uh, and uh, that company. We did business for clients in sixteen countries. Yeah. Wow. So, and then uh, so that lasted for a little while. I had the North American head of uh, business process outsourcing for uh, Price Waterhouse, who was another partner. We had a bunch of very big heavyweights in there, but uh, you know, it, it it kind of. Didn't so, last too long. Go ahead. So tell me, you know, so this all led up to sort of this business thinking institute that you this put into place. And one piece missing, which is reason why I got into business thinking. Okay. So I succeeded with the business I just told you about. And mm-hmm. then I said, you know, enough of this. I'm going to go do something else. And I started something. And because the previous one succeeded, I presume the next one would succeed, and I have all these credentials, and of course I'm going to succeed, right? It absolutely bombed. I lost my shirt on it because I chose not to get uh, investors. Mm -hmm. Um, I chose not to get investors. I poured in my money, and Ah. it failed. And when it failed, I had no answer as to why. And that was the genesis of what is business thinking? What are the silent killers of success? Why do you need a business mindset in order to move forward? Oh, wow, that's very interesting. So, so tell me, what are the silent killers? I'm sorry, Linda, you cut out there. Uh, what are the silent killers, Ron? See, see um, <clears throat> a very simple way of putting it is anytime... When I failed, I call, I'll give you a quick mini story. When I failed, I called a lot of people and said, why do you think this happened to me? You know, it couldn't happen to me, right? Um, they said, you lacked capital, you lacked technology, you lacked something, you lacked, lack, lack. And you've heard all of this. So in other words, if you put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's failed, you think, if only I had X, if only I had access to Linda, if only I had, I would succeed. Well, that's human nature. It didn't make sense to me. I went and looked at... Uh, 
uh, stats and I found that the failure rate is not going down in spite of what the experts are saying. Then I did what's called inversion thinking. I said, maybe I'm not lacking something, but have it. Maybe it's not external, but internal to me. What do I have within me that may have caused me to fail? Those are the silent killers of success. Things that we have within us, we often either want to hide. We, I don't want to let anybody know I have a weakness or I, you know, I, 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 after I hide it, I even forget that I have a problem. So I kind of think of it as a cancer inside you that you carry all over. Uh, for me, I think, uh, and Ram, you can confirm whether or not this is one of your 13 uh, silent killers. It's the ability to admit, I'd, uh, I need help, um, is I think the biggest underminer of success, whether it's a corporate leader or a business leader. The, the, the misbelief that if they just run faster, they yeah. can do it all themselves. So would you agree or disagree? Is that a need for help from others, a silent killer? It, it is, but see, remember the way I define it, I said it's what is within you that causes you mm, to fail. Right. So when you flip that, so if I'm unwilling to ask you for help, Morag, yeah. I think I've got it. I don't need you. you know? so, yeah, there's I've either the ABC. arrogance, yeah, Absolutely. that I've got it, Absolutely. or the, the flip Absolutely. would be, I suppose, the inability to be vulnerable, to, to admit the weakness, to your point, as you were saying earlier on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is the thing. So people who have one of the, the number one silent killer I found, this was true in my case, I presume success. I presume success for a number of reasons. And it turned out that it prevented me from seeing things come and hit me from left field. And by the time I figured it out, I'd spent too much money and it was too late to save it. Wow. So, Ram, we're coming up on break yeah. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, but then I'm dying to hear uh, what were some of the other silent Absolutely. killers that you know, are really going to be invaluable to people. And, I, you know, I love that notion because the, the first one that you said, Morag, that actually you brought out, but it does, you know, when you peel back the onion, it does come down to sort of arrogance, doesn't it? Anyway, stay with us. We're talking to Ram Iyer, um, head and CEO of the Business Thinking Institute. Lots of experience, lots of insight. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, 5 years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Ram Iyer, who is uh, the CEO of Business Thinking Institute, and we are talking about the silent pillars that we really don't realize that are win within us that keep us from being successful and being great business thinkers. So, Ram, tell us what you know. We we were talking about that notion of arrogance. What what are what are the other ones that are so critical that everybody ought to be paying attention to. See, this one is a big one. And as soon as I tell you, I'm sure I'll get both of you nodding your heads and so will most <laughs> of the listeners. Well, you yeah. hear a lot have, of rattling. <laughs> okay. are, are you, have you heard people around you over time 
who are in business saying, you know, I'd really rather be doing X that could be marketing. I'd rather be coding. I'd rather be uh, be doing something creative mm-hmm. instead of being in business. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the moment you hear, I'd rather be X, whatever X is to this individual, that's a problem because it's, they are not, see, there is a going towards value and a going away value. So, so in other words, many people get into business because they don't want to work for somebody, but that's not a good enough reason to want to be in business. It's kind of like saying, I'm running away from this woman and then you run into a woman, that doesn't make her the right person. It just means you had a wrong one, but you need to still seek out and find what's right for you, right? Yeah, pe- People don't do that. They don't do that soul searching. And many people who get into business, may, this is particularly true with entrepreneurs, they get in on a whim because they get a kick out of, I'm an entrepreneur because it immediately gives them a CEO card, they can put their name and everywhere they go, it's like, well, you know, Ramayar, he's the CEO of this company. It's like, whoa, I can puff up my chest now. Mm-hmm. But in the heart of hearts, they neither have the desire nor the motivation to be in business. So this is not the destination they want to go to. That's one. Two, think of a, an, a train going uphill. It has two engines always. There's an engine in the front which pulls it and the engine in the back making sure it doesn't slide back. Mm-hmm. Engine in the front is the desire to be in business. If you have no desire, you're not going to be pulling it. So at that time, you have your motivation or somebody else's motivation pushing you, which is like trying to push a donkey. You don't get very far. Two, if you don't have that engine in the back, your motivation, you're not going to go anywhere. And then when you slide back or get stuck on a hill, you say, gee, I wonder what happened. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's that whole mindset about what it means to to being in business and about business and and going in with your eyes open. I, I've lost track of the number of people who've come to me and they have a misperception that running your own business is easy. I don't know about you, Ram. I mean, you've run several businesses and it's the hardest I've ever worked compared to corporate. Corporate was easy because you had your box and you stayed in your lane and you did your thing and you went home at the end of the day. But running a business, it never stops. And you have to have a care and a passion and an interest in all aspects, the finance, the people, the customer. You're you're absolutely right. But let me give you a little caveat. Mm -hmm. If you truly enjoyed being in business, do you still see it as work? You know, that's oh. a great point. <laughs> remember, uh, Peter, Peter uh, I'm sure you remember Peter Sangi, right? We all know yeah, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, it's really interesting, and I've often used this quote because I, I love this point. If you work at what you love, you never mm. work a day in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. The key, though, is you've got to work at what you love and right. get paid for doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's the, the missing thing. People assume that if I just have a passion, there was a whole lot of memes and it was trendy to find your passion and go do it and you'll never work again. But yeah, but you've still got bills to pay. So it's the how do you monetize it? And again, the connecting it so that others want what it is that you have, whether it's a service offering, a widget, it doesn't matter how great it is. If people aren't buying, you don't have a successful business. That's exactly Correct. You know. See, I'll tell you one very simple thing that I came up with. I put it out as a quote. Very simple. Mm -hmm. Many people in business 
have no business being in business. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Okay. Uh, but the trouble is because it's so glamorous to say I'm a business person, people stay in it and they hurt themselves. And in what way do they hurt themselves then? Oh, because they, they see, they, they spend years of their lives. This is a whole different topic. I've written an article called Business Advice is Like Much of Modern Medicine. Most of the other people involved in the ecosystem of an entrepreneur, for example, are people who benefit irrespective of whether the entrepreneur succeeds or fails. Mm-hmm. When seven out, of entre- seven out of 10 entrepreneurs fail, the entrepreneur, I'm one of them, has lost years of their life, their career, and often millions of dollars, which I have lost uh, in trying to make this venture work. If only I had stopped and done some introspection, I would have avoided the calamity that did, you know, become become of me. But that brings us to another one of your silent killers. I know money is, um, and people's attitudes to it can be a killer. Tell us more about that, because I know it's, it can be hard to ask for it. It can be hard to value your time appropriately. And as you just shared, it's too easy to sink um, more money on a poor bet. So tell us more right. about um, attitudes to money and making money and how that influences See. success or failure in business. We've, we've done a survey to, to kind of validate this, okay? Mm-hmm. Very simply, uh, I'll give you the headline. Every one of us, Morag, you do, Linda, you do, Ram, I do, okay? Every mm-hmm. one of us has a financial thermostat in our heads. Right. Right. Meaning, how much money is enough, okay? Yeah. If you look back on your life, let's say you've decided, I need to make, pick a number, $100,000, mm-hmm. okay? If I came to you with a $10 million deal, your reptilian brain in the basal ganglia is saying, Marag, you don't need 10 million, you only need 100,000. So it ends up doing one of two things. One, it prevents you from succeeding to get to the 10 million. Mm -hmm. Or two, if you've already made 5 million of that, it helps you figure out how to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Simple example, 95% of all the people who win lotteries, lose their entire winnings within three years. So frightening a sad statistic, yeah. Yeah, and what we found from the survey was much of it comes with their notions of whether making money is good or not, what kind, how much money do they, were they told when they were growing up or did they tell themselves growing up they needed in order to have a life that they choose. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if your father, I'll make this up, was making $50,000 a year, and you said, I want to have a standard of living equivalent to my father's. Mm-hmm. Um, and I come to you and say, Morag, you know, I've got a $10 million idea. There's a part of you that says, that's a whole lot more than I need. I just need 50000 in today's dollars, and I'm happy. So it's interesting because there's a fine line, it's a bit like setting a thermostat at home, between having it too hot and too cold. Because Mm -hmm. you can be too bold and say, I want the $10 million contract, at which point everybody's going, yeah, but you're not worth $10 So we overprice ourselves out of the market. And then to your point, we can set it too cool by going, oh my God, nobody will ever pay me $10 I'm I'm never going to ask for it. So we never reach it because we've got the self-limiting belief. So how how do you break through and find Uh the idea? deal temperature? 
Well, two-part question there. Yes, part, I'm good at those. <laughs> that's okay. Part one is, very often I can ask, so like I'll ask you a simple question. Mm-hmm. How much money do you think you need a year or how much net worth do you think you need to build in order to be happy? Pick a number. It pick could a be number. A fixed, pick a number. So, for the sake of this conversation, let's pick a number. Let's stick with 100,000. I like the okay. symmetry of it. Okay, so that's fine. But no, you need to be honest because this is where picking a random number doesn't work well. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Next question is, see, let's say you say a million dollars. Pick a number. Okay. All right, let's go with a million dollars then. A million dollars or 10 million. Pick a number. And then the next question I ask you is, do you truly believe you will achieve that? Ah, so if I say no, then you're looking at what are the silent killers that are holding me back. And if I don't yes, need to wonder. Wonder. I'm telling yeah. you, you have it, period. Okay. I don't have to wonder. Because the moment there is a delta between what you say and what you truly believe, there's yeah. a gap. Killer. Okay. Yeah. All right. I love it. Thank you. There is a gap. Second thing is, you asked a very good question, Morag, about what do I do with the thermostat? You know, it's not like I walk home and I turn it up, right? No. You have to keep tabs on yourself. And and this was also one of my problems because I was actually making more money than I thought I wanted. But I didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. You have to, simple answer is you have to constantly learn to keep turning up the thermostat as you see more and more success in life. Good point. So that's Very moving simple. out of your comfort zone because it becomes easy. If it, if the money's coming in, why would I raise the bar? So, yeah, wow. No, but see, here, I'll give you a very simple example. Let's say you decide I need $5 million and I'll be happy or $1 million. Pick any number you want, okay? Mm-hmm. So let's say it's $1 million and you made a million dollars. When you get to the million dollars, how do you feel? Yeah, you probably well, feel good. Yeah, in that moment for a good few weeks later, it's now the new norm. Correct. Most most importantly, you feel satisfied. Mm -hmm. Okay? If you're satisfied, what is the likelihood that you're motivated to now push for 2 million or 3 million or 4 million or 5 million? It's low. 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 So so I'll give you a real-life example of how I figured this out. I used to live in Seattle when I worked for Boeing. And uh, when I got into all these schools, I said, oh, my gosh, I need to... I need to succeed in these places. I need, I'm going to do something that I've never done before, which I think is extremely difficult. So I looked up, and the tallest mountain around Seattle is a place called Mount Rainier, 14,510 feet. I said, I'm going to climb that to the top. Seven months later, I did climb it to the top. I trained. I did all kinds of things. I climbed Mount St. Helens, Mount Whitney, Mount Rainier. Do you know how many mountains I've climbed since I summited Mount uh, Rainier? I'm going to go with zero. <laughs> because what I failed to recognize and failed to do is once I got to that particular goal, I forgot to set a new goal that was higher. Yes. Same thing with money. You, you get to a million, you need to figure out how to go and set it for two and three mm-hmm. or whatever. Yes, because a business success is a false summit because whether it's the bigger number or the fact that January 1, everything resets to zero and you have to do it again. And at the end of every year, I have to go through the mental uh, 
angst and turn down the trash talk that I could talk, uh, describe in my head that says, oh gosh, I can't possibly repeat the success of last year. And I've learned over a decade to tell myself to shut up because the answer is not only do I repeat the, the success of previous years, it's the building on it and adding to it that is Correct. the new challenge. Correct. But it's, yes. So Here that, is a very, very simple distinction. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows who Jeff Bezos is at Amazon. Yes. Mm -hmm. He's worth, I don't know, something like 130 billion or right now. Something like that. Okay, something change. like that. Here is a very simple question. It's very hypothetical, but very rhetorical. What are the chances that he has a specific dollar number in mind when he wakes up every morning? Hmm. Linda, what do you think? Extremely low. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Linda? Uh, extremely low. Yeah. <laughs> See, the thing is, he is more likely saying, I am having so much fun building Amazon. So every day he wants to have fun building Amazon. I want to beat this market. I want to beat that competitor. I want to... So the joy is in the doing, not entirely focused on rewards. One of the things we found from a survey, I've interviewed about 150 people, People who are legacy-minded, who are thinking well beyond how much money or business one or business two or business 10, and thinking about the long-term benefits of what they are doing in the largest context of society, tend to be more successful than people who have a specific number. Well, it's, it's interesting because that makes me think of a couple of things. One is the, the illusion that everybody is an overnight success. So again, whether you're looking at my business or Jeff Bezos, you see it when it hits the, the big time, but people do not see necessarily the 10, 15 years, 20 years that have Absolutely. gone into getting there. And Absolutely. so that can be a huge misnomer. And then I've lost my second thought, but it no doubt will come back to me in a moment. <laughs> oh, no, I know what it was. It, it goes back to what you were saying earlier on, Ram, though. But yes, if you're focused on the passion and the long-term legacy, it couples with what you were saying earlier on, though. You still need to pay attention to all the metrics. Otherwise, you could still be chasing an illusion of a business yep. that's never going to be successful. And it's knowing when to say, enough, let's try something different, versus sticking with it because you've got a 10-year view and you can't see the fact that it's not going to deliver. Yeah. See, here's a very simple analogy that listeners can kind of visualize in their mind. Let's say you have a 20-pound gold bar and then you have a chain with about 20 links, say, and you need to lift it up four feet. How many yeah. of those links need to be in proper working order for you to lift that 20-pound gold bar up four feet? Hmm. Uh, good question. I don't know. Tell me the answer. All 20 of them. Right. Because, and how many links can go bad in order for you to fail? Well, all 20 of them again. No, Even only one. Just one. The first only one. one. All it yeah. takes is for one of them to be bad. So the thing is, in order to succeed, you made a good point a minute ago, you have to look at all the factors and make sure you have visibility. And the reason, the, the time when you tend to focus that much on how to succeed is when you're passionate about it. Okay. So, Ram, we're about to go to a second break, so do stay with us. You're listening to the Future Proof Workplace Radio Show with myself, Morag Barrett, and Dr. Linda Sharkey. Stay with us. Our guest this week is Ram Iyer, who is the CEO of the Business Thinking Institute. Stay with us. 
We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future-Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future-Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. And good afternoon. Thank you for staying with us. This is Morag Barrett, and I'm here with Dr. Linda Sharkey, and our guest this week, Ram Ayer, CEO of the Business Thinking Institute. And we're talking about the silent killers of both business, but also corporate success. So, Ram, as I was doing some research for the show, I was looking at your website, and you had a great photo there of a donkey or a horse tied to a plastic chair. And obviously, mm-hmm. the implication is the donkey's just standing there because it thinks it's tied up. But it obviously mm-hmm. isn't. But that got me thinking about a conversation saying, so how do I know if I'm tied to a plastic chair? How do I uncover my own personal silent killers? Well, simple answer is I think every one of us has it at one point in time or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, based upon the initial set of nine, I actually developed an assessment mm-hmm. where people can take it. It takes six minutes. It's on the website under assessments, the first one. They can take mm-hmm. it. And uh, the maximum score is 81. And if you get a score below 60, you have enough of these silent killers that will derail you okay, or cause you to fail. Uh-huh. So does that uh, mean I should close up shop or not start the business or does it, uh, am I curable? So I can go and take the quiz on businessthinking.com, businessthinking.com and find uh, under the resources, there's a quiz there. Um, but okay, so I score 60 or I score 80. Does see, that mean, my, what I did was see the in, in statistics, you can go and look at, we have a data set. We administered a survey. We have had 400 some people who took it. Including mm-hmm. 75 million multimillionaires, right? And we found a statistical threshold of a 60 score, a score of 60. Yeah. So we found that people below 60 tended to fail or consider themselves failure. People who were above 60, you know, were able to do better. Right. Okay? So any score below an 80 indicates that you have one or more of the silent killers. Uh-huh. And then, of course, we have further assessments that help you to dig down and figure out what it exactly is. But see, the biggest reason why people fail, this is kind of like, if you will, like a, think of it as the icing on the cake of the silent killers to get a message through to people. The biggest reason why people don't address it is because they don't want anybody to know that they have a problem. Yes. So I don't know how to pronounce your first name, Morag. That's correct. Yes. But... If I asked you and said, I don't know how to pronounce your name, it could make me look bad. Uh huh. So I won't even ask you. And then I said, oh, my gosh, I don't want to pronounce the name. So I end up not even pronouncing your name. It happens to me all the time, Ram. But I chuckle because <laughs> that's a real life issue. You can see people struggling. It's five letters. Come on, people, or just ask. But they won't for fear of causing offense or because they don't want to look stupid. Again, the silent killers, it's what's going on in your head. It's the trash talk. Stop listening to yourselves, people. Just correct, do it. Correct, correct. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, so they can take the quiz 
uh, identify what your risk factors are. And then it's about diving in and understanding, okay, if you have this tendency, you can either anticipate it or you can unlearn and relearn new habits to help you to be successful. So here's a bit of a personal question. So what was your biggest silent killer and how have you learned to mitigate that risk? Oh, that's the first one I talked about. You know, I presume success. Okay. Because, see, we had just revamped cash management for Cargill, a $100 billion company, uh, in my previous venture. And we got all kinds of kudos. We did work for Pfizer, Sony, mm-hmm. uh, DuPont, you know. And therefore, I felt invincible. And I surrounded myself with people who were essentially yes-men. Okay, yes. And they kept telling me how smart I was, how invincible I was. And, you know, you just go to Ram, he'll figure it out. And uh-huh. I started drinking my own Kool-Aid. Oh, so so you need people who are going to be naysayers or give you the keep you grounded with Ram. Yes, you may be very smart. However, you're not so good at this. Who will speak Correct. truth to you. Correct, correct, correct. See, see the, the, I, I have a simple quote on that. Mm-hmm. Confidence is when you recognize the greatness within yourself. Okay? Arrogance is when you refuse to recognize the greatness in other people. Oh, yes. Because, you know, it's okay to say I'm smart, but it's not okay to say Morag is not at all smart or Morag is dumb. Because then suddenly it reduces my effectiveness. It destroys our relationship and things start going south after that. Mm-hmm. So confidence is good. Arrogance is not. And to your point, it's the overplayed strength. And that's the thing about silent killers. It can either be can be both an overplayed strength or it could be a weakness, a gap. So a lack of self-confidence. And More it like comes back are- to the thermostat. We've got to find okay. that sweet spot in the middle. You are absolutely right. That is an excellent point. Many of these things, you know, which are strengths in certain situations become weaknesses in others. And therefore, when you look at what does it take to succeed in business or succeed in life, I boiled it down to one very simple thing. Develop good judgment. Because only you can decide what, is, is, what should be used as a strength or should not, based upon the context, which is something only you are in. And for me, I think that good judgment comes to learning to pause on the hamster wheel of life because I'm a fairly driven person. I love what I do and I will run until I can run no more. But what I do find more challenging is actually stopping long enough to reflect on what's working and what's not. And of course, you can't get judgment You can get judgment from your ongoing successes, maybe, um, and failures, but you get even more insight if you actually pause and understand the why and how did that come about versus, hey, that worked. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Promoting some good thoughts for me. Yeah. See, one thing we found with people who were successful is they had a truth teller around them. Okay. So. how do, how do you get a truth teller? Because that could be a career-making or a career-limiting move to speak truth to somebody in a senior role, either in your company or to a friend or colleague. Well, so how do you go about collecting truth that, speakers? That, that's an assumption you just made. It doesn't have to be somebody. It's probably not good to have somebody in your office being your truth teller. 
this is when you say, you know, you say, hey, uh, Linda, can we have coffee or can we have a little chat? I need to run something by you. And you describe the situation. Linda goes, don't do that, Morag. That's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- that's, that's, a, that's a truth teller. Another person who is typically an extremely good, could be an extremely good truth teller is your spouse. Okay. Okay. Yes. Uh, so I have, I have another theory on that. Uh-huh. Let's say you're in business. It's you, your business, and your spouse. Uh-huh. Okay? If you leave one behind, the other one dies. Oh, right. Okay. Think about that. If you leave your spouse behind and say, me and my business, you have a divorce on your hand. <laughs> if you leave your business behind and go with your spouse, you have a failed business. Yeah. Sweet spot time again. You've got to get the balance of both. You've got to have a supportive spouse and friend network who can speak truth, but also support you through those busy times. Because the amount of, uh, of, of, what do you say, doubt that creeps into your mind, particularly when you're running a business, is extremely high. Yes. And you need somebody to kind of do that, you know, at a boy, pat you in the back and say, don't worry, everything will be okay. I have that in my husband. So I, I'll share a story. I came home one day and I said, am I really a successful businesswoman? And I've got 10 employees and a seven-figure business. And for me at that time, success. Um, but I was having those awful self-doubts. And I can remember he looked at me and said, if that was not the most ridiculous question I have ever heard, I don't know what is, and walked away. And that was his supportiveness. But it was what I needed to hear at the moment. And I still, <laughs> at that time, and it was funny because it still makes me laugh. It stung a bit at the time, but it was yeah. appropriate. There was no molly coddling. Yeah, so, Ram, we're, we're coming lucky. up on the final few minutes of the show. Yeah. So, as we come up on the final few minutes, what are the three key messages that you want our listeners to take away from our conversation today? See, there is something else we didn't touch on, which mm-hmm. I think is funda- well, two, two very fundamental things. Well, let's do those then. One is most people, see, I'm looking out of the window and I see a bunch of trees, okay? Mm-hmm. One person may look at this and say, wow, beautiful day, let me go for a walk in Princeton. Another okay. person may look at the same thing and say, I see 50 trees, they're about 50 feet tall each. If I chop these down, I can get uh, 2,500 uh, feet of trees, which I can sell for 10 bucks a foot and make $25,000. This is not about cutting trees. Why does one person look one way and why does the other person look another way? Right? It's Mm -hmm. a certain mentality that people have. So that is a business mindset where you're constantly looking for opportunities to add value and receive compensation back in return. If you don't think that, Either if you don't know how to add value, don't know what value will be valued by the customer, uh, you have nothing you can really sell. And if you don't uh, provide the value, and if you don't ask for the compensation in return, there is nothing you will get in return. And if you don't have compensation coming that exceeds the cost of providing the product or service, you do not have a business. Perfect. Ram, we are out of time. So how can people get in touch with you? Oh, they can. They can say, you can send me, a, we are at uh, businessthinkingoneword.com. Uh, they can send me an email, ram, R-A-M, at businessthinking.com. Or mm-hmm. call me at 609-275-6300. 
Wow, we've put it out there. Ram, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. Apologies from Linda, she had to step away. But you've been listening to the Future Proof Workplace radio show. Thank you for joining us. As you know, our goal, Dr. Linda Sharkey and mine, is to share insights and information on trending topics impacting the world of work and careers in the 21st century. Our final words is, just remember, the future of work is not tomorrow. The future of work is today. Are you ready? This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.